Wednesday Breakfast acknowledges that we broadcast from the stolen lands of the Wurundjeri and Boonwurrung peoples of the Kulin Nation. We pay respect to their elders, past and present, and acknowledge the continued resilience of First Nation peoples in the face of ongoing colonisation and settlement. We recognise sovereignty was never ceded and a treaty never signed. This is 3CR Breakfast. Alternative news, analysis and current affairs. Monday to Friday, 7am to 8.30am. Good morning, Claudia. Good morning, Ella. It's August... Yes, August. it's begun. Where's the year going? <laughs> yeah, but it's only a month till spring. That's what I'm looking for. True, that's a good way to look at it. I think. <laughs> it's only 13 degrees outside, which is quite warm for, you know, warmish for winter. Mm. But that wind, it was freezing. Yeah, it was fierce. And I was um, driving in the car last night, I got that feeling of having the, the car shaky. kind of rattling around. So, you know, it's strong then. <laughs> yeah, definitely put a chill in the air this morning. Yes. Um, yeah, the winter has felt long this year. I don't know about you, but um, yeah, I think because the last couple of years we haven't been out so much being in lockdown and all, I've really felt the cold a lot more. Um, so yeah, I'm looking forward to that sun. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Even if it's not so much warmer, but just some more bright days and a few more green leaves and flowers around. Yeah. A little sense of summer coming. <laughs> yeah, just that lift to your mood and motivation. <laughs> exactly, yes. And... It has been a, a big, big week, really, hasn't it? Yeah. In, in the news and, yeah, seems to be a lot going on. Uh, very sad news, of course, uh, with Archie Roach passing on the weekend. Yeah, that's right, a 3CR legend or um, many people legend. <laughs> a national legend, but definitely a 3CR legend. Yeah. Yeah, a real people's champion and I was... Uh, Noticing that August is Poetry Month around Australia and one of the, the faces featured is Archie Roach because his songs really were like poems and yeah, absolutely. spoke to yeah, such deep messages about his experience, the experience of First Nations Australians. So um, messages for all Australians. Yeah. Yeah, real, real loss to the nation but... Uh, we're lucky that he was able to contribute what he did this the last year with all the touring and his book coming out and podcasts. It was like he was getting everything out. Yeah, absolutely. While he was able, so, very um, prolific. The legacy um, will definitely live on. Yeah, yeah, definitely. And we'll be continuing to play Archie's music here. Yeah, that's right. Three CR did have a special Archie Roach. Mm. Um, broadcast which yeah you can have a listen back to on our website which looks at some of the best moments where yeah the station's been lucky enough to speak to him and his contribution yeah over a, a long very long long time yeah yeah i think that was uh, monday 11 till 1 so yeah you can listen back to that uh through the website or any of our podcasts and august very big month uh for lots of things i mentioned poetry month it's also the Melbourne Film Festival and Homelessness Week this week. So, um, yeah, they're all items on the agenda 
here today. I'll be starting off the the show with a, a segment uh, looking at the housing crisis and uh, talking with homelessness advocate and worker Lisa Carberry from the Geelong Housing Action Group. They've spoken to us before. Uh, they hold a rally every year in Geelong uh, for this Homelessness Week to raise awareness and yeah, she's going to be talking to us about the, the latest census uh, work that they've done and uh, yeah, all the big big issues yeah. in this uh, very critical emergency really that the nation is facing. Yeah, absolutely. And yeah, a real problem in Geelong in particular, I think. So. Yeah, the, the rates uh, were extraordinary. Yeah, double the national average there. Wow. <laughs> yeah. yeah, that's massive. And I think, yeah, Victoria as a whole um, doesn't fare too well. So mm. yeah. it'll be good to get an update. Um, and yeah, then I'll be up on the roster at 7.30. Um, I'm speaking with Dr. Alexia Maddox from um, RMIT. Um, so it was International Friendship Day over the weekend. Um, and we're going to discuss the way friendships changed around social media and our increasing presence online um so yeah i'm looking forward to it as i was um preparing what i would say i realized my list of questions is getting very long because there's so many Mm. different um aspects of life it um kind of seeps into an effect so yeah it'll be good to hear yeah i'm really uh, fascinated to hear what uh, she has to say and then we're going to invasive species. Yeah, that's right. So we're going to hear from Annie McLaughlin on Solidarity Breakfast. Uh, she caught up with Andrew Cox, uh, CEO of the Invasive Species Council. Um, and they spoke about the threats to the environment and Andrew's recent experience at the National Press Club with the new Minister of Environment, Tanya Plibersek. And to round up the show, we're going to be talking Melbourne and film and football. Uh, I'll be speaking with Adelaide writer and critic Kylie Maslin about the book Melbourne on Film being released this week to commemorate the 70th anniversary of the Melbourne International Film Festival. And Kylie's contribution to the book is writing about The Club, which was uh, Bruce Beresford's uh, uh, directed film uh, based on David Williamson's play about uh, football culture in Melbourne and uh, I don't think you could get two more intertwined sort of themes with yes. Melbourne and football <laughs> and and also film. So yeah, that'll be um, a, a really uh, interesting conversation. I'm looking forward to what she's got to share there. Oh, definitely. Yeah, it'll help me brush up on my conversation starters. I'm still newish to Melbourne, been here a couple of years, but I'd never really been into football before. Um, but now I see what everyone's talking about. Yeah, well, uh, <laughs> Well, interestingly, uh, she was also from Adelaide and uh, she talks about how football became a way of her finding a place of belonging in Melbourne. So maybe you'll pick up some tips. Oh, yeah, <laughs> handy tips. <laughs> oh, and um, yeah, we should mention that our um, usual co-host Jacob is no longer with us for the time being. Um, so yeah, they're taking a little uh, sabbatical, I guess you'd say. Um, to yeah, focus on their studies. So, Jacob, if you're listening, you're on your way to uni now. We wish you the best of luck. And we miss you already. <laughs> yes, and you can still hear their soothing voice on uh, Queering the Air if you want to catch them. Yeah, every uh, Sunday afternoon, 3 till 4pm. And I believe uh, Jacob uh, is going to be hosting Queering the Air every uh, the first Sunday of every month. So, uh, yeah, definitely tune in to um, hear the great uh, stories and conversations. Absolutely. (laughs) 
All right, so I think we'll get started with a song this morning. Uh, I was going to play one from Archie Roach. Uh, this is Weeping in the Forest. One, two, three, four. Yeah. 
Tune in to Stick Together, all about workers' rights and social justice. 8.30am Wednesday, 7am Saturday. Or listen on demand on 3CR's website, 3cr.org.au. No crime, no time. Fix Victoria's bail laws now. Prisons are bursting at the seams with poor people. Istra Melbourne is calling on the Victorian government to release unsentenced people on remand from Victorian prisons. First Nations people are 3% of the population, yet represent 29% of the general prison population. 89% of First Nations women entering prison are unsentenced. Istra Melbourne is asking you to sign the No Crime, No Time petition, which can be found on Istra Melbourne's Facebook page. Indigenous Social Justice Association Melbourne is a 3CR supporter. You're listening to 3CR Breakfast, and before the break, we heard Archie Roach with Weeping in the Forest. And now we're going to talk about homelessness and the housing emergency that Australia is facing. This week is National Homelessness Week, and it's a week when Australia's housing crisis comes under even greater scrutiny. And the voices of those bearing the impact of the failing system speak out yet again. That national homelessness numbers are rising is not new news, but the demographics of those affected are changing. Increasing numbers of waged workers are unable to find affordable accommodation and are turning to sofas, caravans and vehicles as a place to sleep. State and federal governments have committed to building more housing, but the number of homes promised is a mere freckle on a giant landscape of urgently needed homes. Our next guest is Lisa Carberry, a housing and homelessness advocate working with the grassroots activist group Geelong Housing Action Group. This Saturday, the group gathers in the Geelong CBD to voice the urgency of the crisis and demand radical action. Lisa joins us now to talk about the critical housing issues facing the nation and provide an on-the-ground picture of the impact of the crisis on people in Geelong, where the homelessness rate is the second highest in Victoria. Good morning, Lisa. Good morning, Claudia, and all to all your listeners. Thank you very much. Thanks for joining us this morning, bright and early. <laughs> It is a bit early, isn't it? But but they say the early bird catches the worm. (laughs) (laughs) Well, thank you very much. Before we 
hear from you the situation in Geelong. I wondered if uh, we can first recap for our listeners what we're seeing more broadly in the country when it comes to the housing um, situation and particularly supply and demand. Sure. Um, well, it's it's very much come to the fore more uh, and it's really come because of the pressures that so many people are now facing the very real prospect of losing their home and not having anywhere to go. But everybody on the grassroots level has known that this was um, an issue for several decades. Um, but because we have been dealing with the pandemic, uh, it's now brought things to the fore because the financial pressures, uh, the cost of living that people are um, facing now, the ever-increasing cost of living, uh, people are really struggling, really, really suffering, so that the demographic of people who are either already homeless or at risk of experiencing homelessness has shift, is shifting to incorporate a whole wider group of people. So it's not now just people who have been struggling through government inaction on um, welfare payments such as job seeker, disability support, pension, family payments, and those sorts of things. We've now got people who have been employed uh, or are employed who are now underemployed or no longer working or just simply getting that income but it is all going to their rent. The rent affordability issue has skyrocketed. So it's really become something that can happen to it's always been something that can happen to anybody at any time uh, but now we're actually seeing the evidence of that that it is happening to people who never thought they would be in that situation yeah we'll come to um, that uh, set of circumstances that can um, lead someone to face homelessness uh, a bit later I wanted to um, unpack some of these uh, supply-demand sort of factors because before we even get to affordability, we've also seen some shifts in the market, the property uh, market in terms of availability. So um, Domain Real Estate releases its annual report each year and they found that only 1% of rental properties in Australia were actually vacant and available to rent. Um, and that had been the lowest rate for five years and uh, was was half the number available, you know, compared to the previous years. So that in itself, um, I mean, that creates, you know, an almost impossible <laughs> scenario um, for people trying to rent because there's just so little there to start with. Well, that's right. And... Um the uh, first lot of the uh, ABS census statistics 
um, found that there was, um, from memory, a million properties lying, over a million properties, lying vacant on census night. Um, and a lot of um, properties that are vacant are, are holiday homes that are remaining, you know, <laughs> empty. Uh, there's people struggling to even get a home, never mind um, own their home and have one lying there spare. But the stock as well, um, there has been, a, a, at all levels of government, there has been no plan for over 20 years. Uh, great, the announcement that... Um, are made in election, you know, coming up to election time in order for political parties to uh, gain power um, and supposedly represent the interests of the entire nation, not just a select few. Uh, but, you know, 12,000 houses uh, just does not cut the, the number of Places that are necessary when we actually consider that on any given night, according to the 2016 census, on any given night, um, there's over 100,000 people classed as homeless. 12,000 houses? Over yeah, a hundred thousand people needed. It's 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 a grain of sand, mm. <laughs> um, and and so more action needs to be taken, and and it also needs to be invested in the public housing system. Um, the amount of houses that could have been built in terms of public housing, uh, with the money that governments have filtered to the likes of um, social housing and, and community housing providers, which are really glorified real estate agents. Um, but the amount of money that's been funneled into those organisations because governments have abdicated their responsibility and privatised the whole um, housing system would actually have been able to build enough housing, provide enough housing stock so that nobody would be homeless. And if somebody were to find themselves in the position of being homeless, they would have somewhere to be able to go to. But sadly, that's not the safe play that we see here in uh, Victoria or throughout Australia. Mm, not at all. And we hear a lot about affordable housing. Do you think that's becoming a fallacy? I mean, the the results um, when uh, Anglicare surveyed the, the property market earlier this year uh, basically showed it was near to impossible for low-income earners to rent a home on the private property. Do you want to talk a little bit about those findings um, and this issue of affordability being really um, out of people's reach? Sure. Um, well, that that um, report that you um, refer to, it actually found that 
somebody are on job seeker payment, for example, there was not um, one property that was affordable on the level of payment of job seeker uh, to be able to just rent outright. They found that there were seven affordable um, places nationwide and they were all shared accommodation. And we know that that is, you know, it might be okay for some people, but for the majority of people, I think we could all agree that we all would like to be in our own place and with our own space so that we can create that sense of safety and security and comfort. But that figure is, is quite damning, really, um, of... of and, and brings to the surface, or the, to the fore, just how much poverty and welfare payments that are way below the poverty line, how they actually impact people when it comes to being able to have stable and secure housing. So there is no affordability um, because the, the, the way that it um, generally works, and, and this is, is whether you're looking to rent privately or whether you're in, in um, social or affordable housing, no more than 30% of your income is supposed to... Um, well, that's the comfort level that they have deemed um, that you shouldn't be paying more than 30% of your income on your rent. Um, well, that is near on impossible for people on welfare payments. Uh, and contrary to popular belief, not everybody <laughs> is um, a person who doesn't really want to work. The majority of people who are on welfare payments, such as job seekers, actually do want to work. But... Uh, how can you work if you are homeless? Uh, like myself, I've experienced homelessness. I lived in my car for two years with animals, my family. Um, and to actually be able to hold down a job when you have no home <laughs> is, is not doable. Um, but the, the complexities of that housing affordability, we've seen, uh, and it was on, it's been on the uh, news recently, uh, you know, the, the way that the private rental market rent is skyrocketing. Uh, you know, how many people uh, could say that 30% of their income um, equate to being able to afford $400, $450, 500 a week rental properties. That means a person has saved a $500 a week private rental because that's where the market is. How many people can say that their take-home pay is $1,500 a week? Not many people. So um, this whole affordability, it... Um, also, uh, more people are, are struggling. But during the um, 
pandemic, when the government support was doubled, charities saw a drop in um, people needing to access services um, for food relief. They saw um, drops in in people having to struggle because they were uh, unable to afford rental payments. Now, that system, that support has gone because it seems not um, necessary. And so more people than ever are struggling. Um, so there's a lot of underlying... It's not just about the housing side of things. We need to uh, really challenge government about housing, adequate investment into public housing, but also um, our financial support system, uh, our support system for our First Nations people, our support system for women uh, and, and men who are subjected to uh, domestic and family violence, to people who are uh, being uh, released from uh, prison because in my experience of homelessness, the stories that I heard from people who had been released from prison, uh, they were released with nowhere to go. And what kind of a thing uh, is that? You know, they, they, they've been attempting to um, get back on track in their life, but then they have no housing. Uh, so effectively, we are setting them up to fail because they're going to go to their other networks. So there's a whole complexity of issues, and that's one of the reasons why Geelong Housing Action Group very much supports the uh, housing first model of Finland, um, the Finnish model, because they have been able to, as a nation, come together, work together to address the housing situation that they were in and provide a wraparound service that meant that people actually get into a com into housing but they have the support systems to help them sustain it as well so we really need to do a lot more uh it's a fantastic um talking to you and uh sharing all those insights i'd love to hear more about that nordic model uh, another time, and we haven't really had an opportunity to talk particularly about uh, Geelong's uh, situation, uh, but unfortunately we're out of time this morning. Can you give us uh, a little bit of a wrap on the event on Saturday and how people can find out about it? Because I know you're having speakers and so forth, so it'll be a fantastic opportunity to participate in uh, the the call for action and uh, the march. Certainly. So um, we invite any anybody and everybody who is concerned uh, and wants to have their voice heard. Let the let our people know that something really needs to be done uh, on Saturday, the sixth of August at twelve thirty p.m. Meeting at Little Mallet Street Mall in here in Geelong, we the Geelong Homeless as part of Geelong Homelessness Week, 
Geelong Housing Action Group is having a rally in March, so we are going to have a number of speakers, um, different focuses, the political aspect, the lived experience aspect, how um, minority groups are impacted by um, a housing crisis, because the um, Homelessness Week um, focus is to end homelessness, we need a plan. So we are looking forward to having as many people join us uh, and, and let's have a collective voice to really say enough is enough, the time is now, investment is needed now, housing is a human right and let's come together to stop playing politics with people's lives and livelihoods and start taking action so that they have a quality life and a satisfying and stable livelihood. Thank you very much, Lisa. Um, definitely uh, an event to, uh, to attend and support and uh, for people with lived experience of homelessness, broader community. Um, it's it's a, a collective problem. It's not a problem for one group or another. And we all need to take responsibility and action. So I really appreciate your time this morning. That was Advocate Lisa Carberry from the Geelong Housing Action Group speaking about the grim reality of the housing crisis and the rally taking place this Saturday in Geelong. Uh, to find out more, you can go to the Geelong Housing Action Group's Facebook or Instagram page and uh, we'll put all the details uh, up on our show notes. If you or someone you care for is struggling with a mental illness or other disability and you need someone to talk to, you can call the Wellways Helpline. Wellways Helpline is a volunteer support and referral service that provides information to people experiencing mental health issues or other disabilities, as well as their family, friends and carers. We're here to talk if you are feeling socially isolated, seeking information about mental health or mental health services, or just need someone to talk to. As a peer-based service, everyone working at Wellways Helpline has a lived experience of mental health issues or disability. Wellways Helpline is a national service and operates Monday to Friday, 9am to 9pm, excluding public holidays. So if you're struggling yourself or are struggling to help someone else, please call Wellways Helpline on 1300 500. That's 1300 500. Wellways supports 3CR. The Common Social Change Library is an online collection of educational resources for those campaigning for social change. It collects, curates and distributes the key lessons and resources of progressive movements around Australia and across the globe. The library includes over 500 resources covering campaign strategy, community organising, activist history, digital campaigning, diversity and inclusion, and much, much more. It's free to access the library, so check out the collection at www.commonslibrary.org. Common Social Change Library is a 3CR supporter. Tune in to Stick Together. 
all about workers' rights and social justice. 8.30am Wednesday, 7am Saturday. Or listen on demand on 3CR's website, 3cr.org.au. You're listening to 3CR, 8.55am. And next on Breakfast This Morning, we're going to talk about friendship. Uh, On Sunday, it was the International Day of Friendship. So this morning, we're joined by Dr. Alexia Maddox from RMIT. A lot of her research looks at the intersection between sociology and technology. And she's here to chat to us about the changing nature or possibly even meaning of friendship. Uh, Good morning and welcome to 3CR Breakfast, Alexia. Thank you so much for having me, Ella. Um, I was saying to my co-host Claudia when I was um, preparing for the uh, chat today and thinking about what to ask you, I realised I had to really call my list of questions because it's getting very (laughs) large and broad. There's a lot of different areas to go into. Yeah, for sure. So you write a lot about sociology and research and kind of how the two intersect. And you've been writing a bit about how friendship is changing as we move online and a lot of these connections we used to have um, in real life are now on the internet. Um, so could you tell us a bit about the difference between the two? So obviously um, the the functionality or how we actually connect with the person is different, but do you notice differences in the nature of it and um, the kind of support people get or the closeness they have with friendships formed or maintained online? Uh, that's a really good question and I guess kind of I would do a classic academic thing and start with a reframe. (laughs) Please do. (laughs) So, you know, we often think about or we have um, over time thought about what are the differences between how we relate to each other in person versus how we relate to each other when we share a picture through social media, through Facebook, or we have a Zoom session where Zoom drinks, you know, became a thing during lockdown. And uh, we know that the full bandwidth of our friendship can't be compressed into a text message, an image, or or even a video chat, right? So not, no one of these channels actually uh, fully captures what friendship is and does between us, and it's that intimacy, that bonding, that trust, that reciprocity, that kind of connection that we have with someone, the shared interests, the shared activities. Like, friendship is such a broad... Uh, way of being with someone in the world and and one that we care about deeply. So, of course, no one technology is going to be able to provide a full bandwidth for that, but that's fine because that's not actually how we do it. So the way that we experience and enact friendship now in a time of social media, in a time of, you know, where technology and, and these kind of ways of connecting with each other is just everywhere and people are more familiar with these environments, we we, stri- we put different aspects of our, our, our sort of connection to each other in different places. And so we can do, like, use technology and use social media to coordinate catching up, to stay connected and maintain friendships, and to meet new people. So it, it does these three different things uh, really well. And those are sort of like tools for friendship but also we can connect with each other solely online and find new friends and then these environments become a way of being together and we can do shared interests so it's it's a little bit sort of less about uh online and offline 
and much more about the sort of the multi-channel ways of, of connecting with people that we do now. Yeah, absolutely. And it's interesting, obviously, um, we're shaped a lot by um, social media, but I think we also see the way people uh, use sites changes the way the sites work and the way we think of them. So Facebook used to be the one everyone would use to um, connect more on an individual level, but um, it's definitely kind of become more of a community group where we connect with people from a neighbourhood or with a common interest. Um, people are using uh, different sites for different kinds of friendship. Um, so it's interesting to see. Um, you write a bit about um, the performative nature of online friendships and how that um, changes the way we're interacting with people. Could you talk a bit about that? Yeah, for sure. So one of the kind of key aspects uh, that you're talking about, so the, the technical language for this is what does technology afford? And so it's what does it make possible? And social media makes possible the visibility of our social networks. We can see our lists of friends. We can see uh, the photos. We can tag people. We can see uh, the, the friends of friends who get tagged in our friends' photos. So the kind of visibility of what we can see of others is uh, much more in our faces and really kind of weirdly crosses some social norms over what's public, what's intimate and what's private. So that kind of blurring of the boundaries between the, the private world of, of friendship and the public performance of it is, is one sort of distinct change. And and the, the way that our social networks sort of work through the, the platforms themselves, how the platforms actually capture people, allow us to tag people. They collect data on who on what your friends are doing and they use that to impute who they think you are and target you with advertising through that, that kind of process. But uh, the other aspect that you're kind of asking about is that the visibility, how we actually perform friendship has changed. So, you know, you sort of... You'll often see in your feed, like two friends doing a, doing a, you know, a pout together, <laughs> a, a, a pout selfie together. And so, you know, often people will capture selfies of themselves with their friends uh, during an event and put it up. So they're performing friendship. And that, that kind of, you know, really visual culture around friendship is, is really different now from what it has been historically we've got like the sort of the precedent of pen pals friends uh, who connect across distance and use forms of of communication to stay connected with each other and to share themselves with someone else and uh you know there's this this kind of strange situation where we've got people who are our friends who are who follow our accounts and we've got people who are acquaintances that we might know and they follow our accounts and then you've got people you don't know and they follow your accounts and so you've got these different sort of concentric circles of of different types of friendship groups that are also uh, following you on social media and people often sort of say well you know just because it's tagged the person is tagged as a friend are they really a friend they're just like a follower and so you know it's when you you try to sort of talk about friendship and social media influencers and followers, that's not the same situation. Social media influencers are building audiences and connecting with followers through authenticity. And, you know, that sort of looks like friendship and, and followers engage and build identity through, through that process. 
but that is not the same as enacting friendship. And often what people think is that because we uh, our bodies are distanced, we're not in person, we, we can't read uh, the other person's full characteristics, that we regard people as objects online. And, and there's actually quite a sort of a branch of research that talks about how we objectify other people and we strip out the sense that they're a person, our ability to be empathetic with them. And that research is has it's got quite a strong message, but it's actually not true. We can have that full kind of bandwidth of, of friendship expression through social media and through different media. It, it doesn't automatically mean that we objectify people, but it can mean it. Yeah, yeah absolutely. And I kind of think even though... Um the way maybe the degree to which it's happening has changed. Um, the friendship has, in a way, always been kind of performative in in some senses, or maybe not performative, but at least validating. And I think that's okay. Sometimes we feel validated by someone we like, knowing they like us back, and vice versa. Um, yeah, yeah. Do you think validation is big? Yeah. Yeah. Do you think um, the performative nature is something we should be? concerned about or a big issue or do you think it's just um part of how we're working out new friendships i think there's there's sort of two aspects to that so you know obviously we're growing up through social media and through the internet and uh we're expressing ourselves our identities we're building confidence about ourselves and so when people are kind of seeking that acknowledgement like you do seek acknowledgement from your friends you want them to see you and know who you are and acknowledge that and and validate you so that is a healthy process and friends do it for each other but obviously if you're just kind of putting content out and waiting for likes from your your followers and your networks just in order to make yourself feel good well that's kind of stepping into an unhealthy place but social media isn't uh necessarily causing that it's certainly feeding on it (laughs) (laughs) yeah right so you know people who have those insecurities and those needs for validation they can get a lot of it from social media sometimes that builds them up but it it can also be an unhealthy process and you saw a lot about that kind of play out when uh you know the platform started to kind of go all right well we'll just take away the numbers or let you or you can find a hack to reduce being able to see how many likes you get for this or to make the number of likes that you're getting not visible to your audience to try to take away that incentivization. But at the same time, the platforms want people to engage. That's their business model is engagement and participation. So they're sort of building in these mechanisms to nudge behaviours to be active in the environment and that's what demonstrates you know, their value to investors, stakeholders and advertisers. So there's these different kind of pushes and pulls in the environment that we need to be very aware of and to really hold platforms accountable for ways that they might choose to manipulate social behaviour. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. We kind of have this um, love-hate relationship with, um, yeah, all these tools that let us quantify all these aspects of life that weren't so quantifiable before. Um, Yeah. Do you think there's um, certain types of people, whether that's like a personality type or people from different groups in society, um, who benefit more or thrive more in the um, with the nature of social media? 
Yeah, for sure. So, you know, for example, people who are really gregarious and they like to have a lot of different novelty and, and um, excitement in their lives and, and things that really make them focus externally. So, you know, an extrovert. Uh, having lots of friends, seeing lots of things happening, feeling a part of that can be really nourishing for them. For other people like introverts, that can be draining, but it's really possible for someone who is uh, feeling socially awkward in in-person situations to feel more comfortable relating to people through, uh, through social media or online. So it's really that sort of interaction between someone's personality, their social preferences and their desires for different types of connections how they choose to use the environment. I mean, we all know that there's lots of different kinds of settings you can put in place to control how visible you are to others and who is in your networks. And so people use those mechanisms to to do audience segregation and control their network size, reach and visibility. So there's kind of the agency of, of the user or, or like me online, I can control a lot about my privacy and visibility and how many people I allow to connect with or to see the content I produce. And I can also sort of do audience segregation. So for young people, this is really about code switching. They might use a platform or a range of visibility settings to say all of this group of people, like my school friends, can see these photos from me. Uh, the adults in my life can't see these conversations. <laughs> so, you know, we do do a lot of self-management around visibility and performance. And it, it's kind of the sense that social media is like a stage and we're performing sort of, you know, authenticity in that space. And just because it is performative doesn't mean it can't be real. And, and that is a really important point to make. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and I wanted to ask, I think um, something I hear a lot in conversations around technology and how more and more is moving online is um, a conversation about the concept of trust um, and how that's kind of changing um, as we're not seeing each other um, face to face and um, all the different kind of systems and services within society that affects, so I guess, both um, interpersonal trust and also trust in yeah organisations or services. Um, do you think uh, the concept of trust or what it means or how you gain it is changing? I think the bandwidth for different definitions of trust is broadening. So what do I actually mean by that? So I think, for example, the things that um, constitute trust between two people, interpersonal trust, are very consistent. Uh, you're able to uh, see a person, know a person, uh, predict their behaviours, uh, estimate the level of risk, um, choose how much emotional intimacy and disclosure you do with that person and have a sense of confidence about how they're going to handle that and whether they can reciprocate. So the sort of the sense of trust is like a, a connection between uh, you and another person or organisation and you trust that the action that you put into that space is going to be held out, valued, acknowledged and reciprocated. So that kind of interpersonal trust really scales out and we have different levels of trust depending on the history of what happens in that relationship. 
So, for example, you know, you can be betrayed by a person, you can be betrayed by an organisation, and you can be betrayed by a platform. So Cambridge Analytica, for example, is a big example about how people stop trusting platforms with their personal data. So the, the way that trust works, do we trust the person? Do we trust the technology? And do we trust the our vulnerability <clears throat> there you go there's that word our vulnerability in these environments and how careful we need to be and how much we need to protect ourselves and that's you know about people it's about your classic boundaries around uh uh people who are socially maladjusted uh you don't want them to hurt you <laughs> yep. but also but also when you're thinking about what is it that you're trusting when you work into these spaces so uh, for example the whole qr code check-in uh, with the lockdowns, that really provoked large levels of distrust. And that distrust was not necessarily in the technology, although for some people it was an invasion of personal privacy. They didn't trust the government to keep their data secure and to use it because the COVID tracking app, for example, that, that was generated really quickly, uh, didn't function the way it was supposed to. So there was this massive loss of trust just because the technology wasn't used and didn't work the way that we had hoped and it was we were blaming the government for that so you know there's just such a complex discussion that goes around trust and I could talk forever but I should probably stop (laughs) (laughs) no I'm fascinated by it it's interesting once you get started it's um, hard to stop Um, what do you think in terms of um, anonymity online? Do you think people should be able to be anom- anonymous or um, how do you feel about certain um, uh, guidelines by various social media sites where you have to use your own name? I've, I've heard some arguments that actually people are often more truthful when they're anonymous, um, but then I can certainly see the argument in the other direction. Yeah, so my research has been with communities that value anonymity, um, privacy and, uh, you know, um, don't desire to be surveilled. So I, I respect that and I think that it's important that people can operate through spaces of privacy, that that is actually a right and that there is that anonymity can actually give, uh, sort of create these permissive scapes where people can build more honest and authentic encounters. And, you know, it's also the problem that we face is that we are surveilled everywhere that we move in 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 in-person and online spaces and that could be surveillance by the platform it can be social surveillance by other people we know or in our networks and it can also be government surveillance so it's it's like we're just in these really datafied rich environments that are always tracking what we're doing and at some point it's kind of important to say actually no I don't consent to that and that doesn't belong to you. I own that and I own my identity and I choose to do it this way. So there's these two different questions of anonymity and the first one is, you know, what's its value in in human encounters? Should we be able to be anonymous and hang out? Like have you ever been to a bar amongst a bunch of strangers that you don't know and struck up a good conversation? Mm. Yeah, so that's just like your basic anonymity. It's just strangers. 
a stranger comes into town. Yeah, and I was thinking um, <laughs> about that a lot in terms of, um, yeah, there's obviously the, the safety aspect and people having a right to privacy, but it's also, yeah, that anonymity <laughs> being yeah. tongue-tied there on an interpersonal level. Normally when we, yeah, as you said, meet someone in a bar, we don't have a list of all their groups they're a part of or interests and that gives the person the kind of freedom to be who they want and maybe understand who they are a bit better whereas if we all feel like we know everything about everyone and everyone knows everything about us I think it's very hard to change or learn different things about yourself. Exactly exactly and I think that learning process and those encounters are just as important as it is to for platforms to be able to enact real name policies to reduce risks so I get that they do that but I also think that that's uh, an agenda about connecting everyone's uh, identities online so that the data can be traceable across platforms. So there's lots of different reasons that people would push a uh, real name agenda in online spaces, and that historically has not been uh, where the internet started. And it started as this great identity exploration, you know, for people in the 1990s, and that was very much like, on the internet, nobody knows you're a dog. Everyone who's like, I don't know, 30 and above may have seen that meme. But <laughs> um, now it's, you know, on the internet, everyone knows what. They know quite a lot about you. And for some people, if, for example, you're in grief, you're, you're experiencing a mental health crisis and you need to reach out for support, but you don't want to expose your that particular issue or need to family or other people who know you. You, you want to go into a, a custom-supported environment, for example, like Beyond Blue, which is an anonymous online forum for people to kind of share their experience around mental health. And you know you're going there, you know it's anonymous, and you know it's designed to be supportive for you. And you can get, and they do get, social support through that process. So having those spaces is so important. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And it's, um, as you said, a tool. So obviously it can um, have bad effects. But I think, yeah, instead of focusing on, um, yeah, all the ways it doesn't work, just try and focus on how we can shape it to, yeah, be a tool to people's benefit because there are a lot there. Um, we are running out of time, so I'll have to wrap up quickly. But just before you go, um, do you have any tips for uh, listeners who want to create more meaningful interactions online? Oh, I think that uh, go forth, have fun, find people who share your interests and uh, participate in common activities and build bonds and um, ex experiment and explore. Excellent. And um, lastly, where can we find more of your work if we want to read more? Ah, so you can find me on Twitter. Uh, my my Twitter handle is Alexia Mad, and I do tend to really share a lot of the different uh, influences that come my way in that space. And you can also find me online just by Googling my name. And um, I have a blog that I write and obviously publish a lot of academic work. Excellent. All right. Thanks so much for joining us this morning, Alexia. Oh, it's a pleasure. Thanks for having me, Ella. Enjoy your day. And that was Dr. Alexia Maddox uh, from RMIT. Um, so she works at RMIT's Blockchain Innovation Hub um, and she's a research fellow on the Digital CBD Project. Um, and her research looks at the intersection of sociology and technology. She was chatting to us there about uh, the changing nature of friendships as we move online. Uh, you're listening to Wednesday Breakfast. We'll be back with you shortly.
Get your free ticket to the upcoming Forum for Dwelling Justice, an activist-driven event featuring speakers including Senator Lydia Thorpe, Debbie Kilroy, Rouge Amity, Whit Gari, and more. The Forum brings together grassroots activists and campaign groups to strengthen solidarity movements resisting ongoing colonial dispossession, housing injustice, incarceration, and poverty. The forum ends with film screenings and a discussion between Uncle Larry Walsh, the filmmakers, and guests with lived experience of homelessness, displacement, squatting, and public housing. The event will run from 1 to 7 p.m. on Friday, the 26th of August at the Capitol Theatre, 113 Swanson Street, Narm. Entry is by donation. Join us to identify the radical potential for resistance to dispossession and displacement in Narm. To register, head to cur.org.au forward slash events or check the 3CR website for details. The Forum for Dwelling Justice is brought to you by RMIT's Centre for Urban Research, a 3CR supporter. Australian Plant Society Yarra Yarra Group is having its Australian Plants Expo on the 27th to 28th of August, 10am to 4pm at the Eltham Community and Reception Centre, 801 Main Road, Eltham. Huge native plant fair. Thousands of native plants included grafted, uncommon species and indigenous plants with books on related subjects, crow's foot pottery, gift stalls, native flower displays and activities for children. Refreshments will also be available. Wheelchair friendly, adults at $5, concessions $4 and children free. Check out our website for plant lists, apsyarayarra.org.au forward slash Australian Plants Expo. A 3CR supporter. You're listening to 3CR Wednesday Breakfast. Um, and before the break, we heard Adelita with Double Dare. Um, and just a quick apologies to listeners this morning. Earlier, we promised you a segment uh, on from the Invasive Species Council um, from Solidarity Breakfast. Unfortunately, we're not going to be able to play that one this morning. Uh, you can find it online um, under the Solidarity Breakfast page, or we might try might try and play it for you at a later date. Uh, but in the meantime, over to you, Claudia. Thank you, Ella. So the Melbourne International Film Festival opens tomorrow evening in Melbourne in what will be the event's 70th year. And to celebrate the milestone, the festival has published a collection of writings capturing what they describe as Melbourne's identity in cinema. The anthology is called Melbourne on Film, Cinema That Defines Our City. And it includes a collection of personal reflections and analysis of key films, such as the first film ever screened in Melbourne, the story of the Kelly Gang, which was screened in 1906, and classics such as The Castle and Monkey Grip, experimental films and shorts, and much, much more. Here to tell us about the book is one of the contributing essayists, writer, critic and author Kylie Maslin. Welcome, Kylie. Hi, how are you? Very well, how are you? I'm well, thanks. Thank you very much for joining us on a Wednesday Breakfast. Uh, Melbourne on Film. It's a collection of essays on Melbourne films, but it's so much more than that. Uh, can you tell us a bit about the book and its breadth, uh, both in the collection, the writers, and the way it sort of captures so many um, elements? Yeah. Um, 
excuse me. Uh, we know that, you know, Melbourne is a um, centre of culture in this country and, um, uh, you know, Myth's got such a wonderful, rich history and, uh, yeah, this book does a really great um, job of capturing, I think, not only uh, Melbourne's place in uh, cinema in this country, but in the arts as a whole. So not only looking at um, some of the, you know, really well-known films to have come out of this city, but also some of the development of filmmaking and the, yeah, I guess culture at the heart of storytelling in this city. Mm. And can you share a little bit about how the films were chosen and the different ways Melbourne is present in the films? Yeah, so they were chosen um, to really um, show the breadth of the city as well as um, the breadth of films that have been made in this um, town. So um, there's everything from um, the castle to... Um, as you mentioned, the story of the Kelly gang, um, uh, head on, um, Oz, death in Brunswick. Um, yeah, it's a real, it's a real kind of, really every genre is covered. Mm. Um, and yeah, from a, a really, um, wide range, you spoke about, you know, the story of the Kelly gang is the first film to have been shown in Melbourne um, to yeah, some um, films that uh, probably listeners can recall a little easier so yeah, the, the well-known um, The Castle or uh, Love and Other Catastrophes um, Monkey Grip um, and I've written about The Club Yes so your essay on the club, were you asked to write specifically on this film or was this your personal selection? Um, no, I was uh, commissioned to write about um, the club very kindly by Miff. Um, um, I am uh, a cultural critic, but I'm also um, an occasional sports journalist. So uh. um, it's very much in my wheelhouse to be... Writing across both. Um, so, yeah, it was a real treat to be offered this opportunity. And um, the film is based on the play written by David Williamson and directed mm. by Bruce Beresford and is set in a Melbourne football club. For listeners who might not be familiar with the film or the play, can you give a brief recap of the main storyline and context? Yeah, sure. So it's, um, yeah, set... The play is set a little more, um, uh, you know, there's not as many um, direct pointers, but the film is very much set at the Collingwood Football Club in Victoria Park. Um, And, yeah, it centres on a club sort of really coming out of uh, a bad period where... And a real changing of the guard where the board is kind of really trying to take over and improve the club and get more members. And they bring in um, a high-profile draftee from Tasmania. Um, and 
there's a lot of internal politics, um, but there's also just like some really quite farcical comedy, um, and it's for anyone who like me grew up going to suburban footy ovals. There's a lot to um, connect with, and a, a lot that will remind viewers of. Um, that, yeah, really quintessential Melbourne um, and Southern Australian experience. Yeah, it's directed by Bruce Beresford and it stars Jack Thompson um, amongst a suite of um, other uh, actors. And, yeah, it's a real... um, it's the first movie that Beresford uh, made after Break a Morant, um, and it couldn't be more different. Mm-hmm. Um, but, yeah, it's, there's a real charm to the film, and it, but it really also, watching it now, is a real reminder of the sexism, racism, general fear of the era... Um, and it's really interesting to watch that now and see what's changed and, unfortunately, what hasn't changed. Um, and, yeah, it's still... It really... Uh, the film really stands up um, in the present day and um, is a odd kind of foreshadowing of some of the politics um, that are still at play, both at um, the Collingwood Football Club, but in the AFL as a whole as well. And you mentioned uh, your own memories of visiting Melbourne uh, as a child and the experiences that you had at local football grounds watching VFL, mm-hmm. uh, as well as uh, you were a, a, an Adelaide person, so you had your own yeah. local team in, in Adelaide uh, at Glenelg. And... Yeah. The local club is at the heart of uh, the club, the movie and play in the pre-AFL era. I just wondered if you can build on some of those recollections that you had personally and also the way that they're portrayed uh, in the film um, to to share some of that colour and character. Yeah, sure. Um, so, I yeah, I grew up. Um, in Adelaide and going to um, SANFL games, which is our VFL equivalent, going to suburban ovals and, you know, watching. That was like the era of, um, you know, Stephen Kernahan playing at Glenelg before he came over to Carlton, for example. Um, and, yeah, it's... Um, it was such a it was such a huge part of my childhood, and really, when I think of being a kid, I think of you know running around the club rooms um, while my family watched training on a Thursday night, and um, then uh, coming to games on the weekends, and um, the club. Yeah, it's set at Victoria Park in the same sort of um, era in the early 80s. And um, it's really really lovely kind of seeing it 
back in that full glory where, you know, stadiums are packed and um, it's a real suburban experience. But it also kind of um, speaks, I think, a lot to the AFLW experience. Um, you know, now those games are played at Victoria Park and um, Princess Park in Carlton and Witten Oval in Footscray and they've really revived these suburban ovals that otherwise um, were kind of just used for training and, you know, really starting to lose um, their familiarity um, with people in Melbourne. And so, yeah, it was lovely watching the film and kind of um, seeing it in its, in its heyday, but also, yeah, seeing, um, you know, looking at it now from a um, current perspective of the way that um, the AFL has become so commercialised and um, it's really, I think it's fair to say, it's really kind of forgotten a lot of its community suburban roots in a lot of ways. Um and the film really documents that time where um, the game and the league became a lot more about money um, than it did about suburban connection and, um, you know, being that real kind of recreation rather than a profession. Mm. And you also talk about the sense of belonging that being part of those local clubs gave you as a young person. Mm. Do you think mm. that was partly due to that community um, aspect of the local club? Yeah, I think so. I mean, I, at that, that point in time, you were a lot more likely to support a club if they were your local um, club, or if you had family ties to the club, like I did, um, and so yeah, it it really does. The film really does, um, yeah, it can really connect with that time. And the players speak about, um, you know, what a, a privilege it is to be playing for a club, and. Um, especially one with, you know, such a storied history and uh, but at the same time the administrators are um, starting to really change up um, the way that the club works and it's, you know, no longer becoming a place that you play for, um, for the privilege and for the... Um, Joy, the joy, yeah, that's becoming a commercial enterprise. Mm. And you also mentioned um, that the film's very embedded in the 80s in terms of its sort of racial um, and gender profiling mm. and all the characters are white males in the club. Mm. What aspects of, of that do you feel were typical of the time and how do you see that changing now? Yeah, it's very, it's very masculine. It's very white. Um, there is a lot of um, there's a lot of sexism in particular um, in the film. Um, 
but that is really representative of the time and um, it's done in it's done in a way that is a real kind of cultural critique of the time um, it's not I I really believe that it wasn't Williamson's intention to um, uh, to do so frivolously. I think it was done as a critique and as a, a satire on football culture. Um, it, it is really interesting <laughs> watching it now, um, knowing uh, some of the... Um, controversies that have been brought or Collingwood in particular in, in terms of um, uh, Eddie Maguire's quite famous um, racism and sexism um, as, you know, a now ousted club president um, and it's, yeah, it's, it's being a being a football fan and being a, a progressive, uh, following progressive politics is often quite a difficult um, thing to uh, negotiate. Uh, yes, exactly. Yeah, um, and so I think you know this is this is it can be seen. Uh, on face value is, you know, quite a farcical um, joke about um, the the men of football, but I think it's actually a really subversive work um, and really satirical. Um, and I think actually looking at it um, from uh, a current perspective, even for those who... Um, quite as football crazy as I am. I think that um, there's still a lot to get out of this work. Um, and, yeah, looking at it from um, an AFLW fan's perspective as well as someone who grew up in the 80s and with that kind of footy culture, it's um, it's a really, yeah, really interesting balance. Mm. Yeah. Well, thank you so much for sharing all your insights on this wonderful book and particularly on your segment on the club. Um, as, as mentioned, there are a, a whole diversity of films talked about in this book. And, um, yeah, so it's a wonderful way of uh, learning about Melbourne and thinking about it in different ways as well, um, whether you're living in Melbourne or a visitor to Melbourne or just interested so um, thank you very much. The book is called Melbourne on Film, Cinema That Defines Our City. And for information on the Melbourne International Film Festival, you can head to miff.com.au. Um, as I said, it opens tomorrow night. And we thank uh, Kylie Maslin uh, for contributing uh, to our show this morning. Uh, thanks for joining us this week. We'll be back with you next week. In the meantime, here's Stick Together. 3CR Breakfast would like to thank the New International Bookshop, Melbourne's independent radical bookstore and venue, for their financial support of this program. You can find Nibs in the basement of Trades Hall in Victoria Street, Carlton. And while you're there, check out Radical Coffee, a worker-run cooperative cafe in the courtyard.